Hello, hello. Welcome to Highbrow. My name is Mina Lay and I will be your host today and every day because I am the only host of this podcast. I don't know why I always say that. Um, today we're going to be talking about the way rich people dress and particularly quiet luxury and stealth wealth because those have been massive buzzwords in the past couple months. I actually think I'm pretty late to this conversation, but in my defense, in my defense, I was talking about it in previous episodes, just kind of like here and there. And I don't know, I just realized that there was enough information there that I could put together an entire episode on it. And that's kind of what I'm doing today. (laughs) This is actually an extended version of a video published on Monday, but uh, extended in the sense that I invited Amanda Mull to do an interview with me at the end. And if you don't know Amanda Moll, she is a very talented writer. I've been following her work for The Atlantic for a couple years. Has she been working that long? It feels like it's been years. Maybe it's been months. It feels like it's been years. But I've been following her for a while. And I brought her on because she wrote this really great article called Stealth Wealth is a Fake Trend, which, you know... We'll, we'll talk about it, so you'll get some more information about what she thinks about the whole quiet luxury, stealth wealth situation. But also, we're going to be diving into hypergamy, which is uh, the word for marrying up in your social station and how that ties into stealth wealth. And we're also going to be talking about cases when rich people dress down, when they try to be poor instead of trying to be rich and the social signals for all of that. So a lot to talk about. I also did post on my Instagram stories the question for the episode, which is, are you influenced by the way rich people dress? And just as a note, if you ever want to participate in these question answer sessions, I post questions on my Instagram stories. It's highbrow.pod. And usually I have it correlating with um, a deep dive episode and I take calls and emails. So yeah, the question for this session was, are you influenced by the way rich people dress? And I just wanna say as a disclaimer, we are all to some capacity influenced by the way rich people dress because of the top-down nature of the fashion industry. So if you've watched the Double Wears Prada, you definitely have heard the cerulean monologue that Miranda Priestly or Meryl Streep delivers, but if you haven't, it's just this idea that runways set the trends and then whatever is on these high fashion runways get distilled down into retail stores like I don't know Zara, H&M, Morph and then down to like Walmart and Target and I don't know it just everything that trickles down in the fashion industry starts from the runway and so in a way we are all influenced by the wealthy people who set these trends. That is a very uh, general statement I'm making, like not everything in fashion works as top down. Sometimes there's bottom up trends and sometimes they're like side to side and whatever. So that's not always the case, but it is the case for some trends. And so that's why I say in some capacity, um, we are influenced in some way by rich people. But that's not the question that I'm trying to ask or that I posed on my questionnaire. It's more like, do you notice the way that specific rich people dress and does that influence the way that you dress so more specific less general okay so with that said let's dive right in 
So let's start in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, mainstream fashion trends of the time were all about bling, logos, bold colors, and maximal styling. Christina Binkley, who covers fashion for the Wall Street Journal, told Vox, people were dripping in gold. There was bling on clothing, jewelry, accessories. Fashion had been really loud and it was a huge party. But then that shifted literally overnight because the recession hit in 2008. Things pivoted. And even though members of the ultra wealthy class, like their lifestyles didn't really change with the recession, they still opted to dress in less lavish ways because being loud and proud about how much money you had was particularly gauche when literally the rest of the world was suffering. Ron Frosch, who was president and chiefing merchandising officer of Saks Fifth Avenue in the late 2000s, noticed that the wealthiest shoppers still bought luxury goods during the recession, but there was pushback against items that had noticeable logos. And also, in the face of economic uncertainty, simplicity and neutrality became safer bets for designers. For example, Phoebe Philo, the creative director of Celine from 2008 to 2018, rose to fame for her understated but still expensive designs. Colors also reflected this new minimalism. In 2008, the colors black, gray, navy, and white dominated fashion shows more than ever. For those impacted by the recession, fast fashion and thrifting became major ways to look stylish while being on a budget. People wanted to dress cheaply, but they also didn't want to look cheap. So this is when the concept of high-low dressing became really trendy. And, you know, I was really young during the recession. I wasn't, like, super young. I was, like... 10? I think I was like 10 years old during the recession. And I was too young to recognize what was actually happening in the economy. But I will say that I really liked reading fashion magazines that my mom collected. And I remember that um, in these fashion magazines around like 2008, there were just so many articles and advice columns about how to mix and match like designer pieces with pieces from like H&M or Zara. In her book, Dress Code, Unlocking Fashion from the New Look to Millennial Pink, Elle Fashion Features director Veronique Kyland writes, High-Low became first a personal style directive and then more of an order for strivers. Millennial women who entered the workforce during recession were advised to mimic a proper professional appearance by mixing fast fashion items, often runway knockoffs, with investment pieces at a time when investments of all kinds felt precarious. Usually the investment pieces that these magazine articles would suggest you to buy were like bags or accessories like sunglasses um, or jewelry because these items get the most wear and the most rotation in your day-to-day um, -day outfits. And 2008 wasn't actually the first time high-low dressing was introduced. In a 1974 essay called Recession Dressing, the fashion writer Kennedy Fraser wrote, the old interest in the cautious principle of spending more on fewer clothes of better quality is back. In the years following the recession, startup companies embraced a minimal logo design, so um, Glossier and Warby Parker come to mind. The reason these companies in the 2010s leaned so much towards sans serif fonts and white space is because it was markedly different from the clunky logos of big corporations. Leo Wang, CEO of Buffy, a comforter startup, said, that first generation of direct-to-consumer successes started in that post-recession moment. They were about value, honesty, transparency of economics, and getting a good deal. All of that felt front of mind for customers. Corporate America had swindled them. I feel like now um, 
we've moved to sort of like bubblier, like curvier, more fun kind of marketing that is uh, more representative of Gen Z values. So nowadays I definitely feel the whole minimal graphic design has kind of teetered out because Gen Z prefers like curvier, fun, bubblier type of graphic design in their products. And part of that is definitely because, you know, graphic design trends come and go. But also what I've noticed is that a lot of major companies like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or, you know, these like big corporations that have been big for a long time that used to have this very clunky graphic design and clunky logos, they have all simplified their designs to match like these millennial startup companies and therefore that entire design aesthetic has uh, kind of just become washed and untrustworthy. <laughs> Hi, I'm responding to this thing about um, whether I want to dress like rich people. And um, I don't know, personal answer is no. I was a scholarship kid at a private school and kind of recognized pretty quickly that A, rich people dress like shit and that there are rules to it that I think are harder to understand than just simple, like what looks good. It has to look good in a very specific way and I don't, I don't really like that. I also think that even attempting to do it, there's some level of failure, which, like, there, there's a level of taste, there's a level of style that, like, is acquired by, like, being a rich person or being, like, especially an old money type of rich, that um, those that are not in the know just simply won't understand. And so why why even bother at that point? It's also not something that, appeals to me. I'm interested in not looking rich or not even not looking not rich, just looking sexy, looking smart. And I don't think you have to look rich in order to do both of those things. Ooh, okay. I think this was like a really interesting message because I received an email from another person who is a 15-year-old girl named Amelia And she wrote to me that she also went to a very privileged school. And so clothes and wealth was like everything. And she was definitely influenced by the richer girls at her school and how they dress, um, especially as someone who came from a middle working class household herself. And so in a way, like she felt she had to participate in a lot of these trends set by rich people to fit in because she she felt pressure too. And I think it's really interesting because um, your experience talking is that you recognize that there were codes there that you couldn't assimilate with and therefore you didn't feel the pressure to try. And I think it's just like very interesting the way that uh, growing up in a wealthy area affects different people. For me personally, I grew up in a I would say I grew up in an upper middle class area, but I went to public school, but a lot of the kids in my public school made, their parents made, they didn't make a lot of money, their parents made a lot of money, like a lot of like children of doctors and lawyers, and I guess that doesn't really compare with like some richer areas of the country, like I assume like the Upper East Side of New York, it's full of like parents who are CEOs of God knows what, but um, yeah, I definitely felt like I was... um, 
influenced by the way that girls in my grade dressed because I wanted to fit in because they were obsessed with this book series like The Click, which I've mentioned before. That book literally has traumatized me to <laughs> to Helen back because of it's it's about these like rich private school girls and they bully the scholarship girl because she can't afford to buy Jimmy Choo's or whatever the fuck and yeah I wanted to fit in so badly and then I feel like these schools become ecosystems that are so isolated from the real world because I'll also come across all the time these narratives from people like uh, Leandra Medine, who was the editor-in-chief of Man Repeller, and she did a podcast interview with The Cutting Room Floor that didn't go too well, but in it she talked about how she like grew up so much poorer than all of her classmates, but then the reality is that she, her parents did have a house in the Hamptons or something like that, and it was just because of the comparison between her and her Upper East Side private school friends that she wasn't able to gauge the fact that her parents actually did make quite a lot of money compared to the rest of the country. So I don't know. It's good that you were able to escape this bubble because for me, I think it definitely took time away from where I grew up to develop my personal style because while I was there I was just so focused on blending in and being a part of something that I could never really be a part of. As of now, um, you know, the current economic situation in the U.S. is a little dire. As I've said, we've kind of been in this impending recession era for a while now, um, but also like companies are scaling back. People are getting laid off in mass. Housing prices are becoming more and more unaffordable and the writers are on strike. So things are just not looking very good. At the same time, the pendulum seems to be swinging back towards minimalism. For example, during the award show season earlier this year, fans noticed a lack of jewelry on the red carpet. More specifically, a lot of celebs were missing necklaces while wearing low neckline dresses that seemed to scream for a necklace. Trend forecaster Delaney Bryant suggested that this was all intentional, predicting that it was actually a sign of economic downturn, hence the term recession core coming up as a trend. Other TikTok trend predictions anticipate a move towards bigger bags, fewer accessories, outfit repeating, and androgyny, alongside messy hair and makeup that exude utilitarian practicality. The trend of de-influencing, aka sharing overhyped products you don't think are worth the money, also speaks to a recession core mindset. Trend forecasters are expecting the resin jewelry and checkerboard prints of the past few years to phase out, while versatile and minimalist brands like The Row and Kate are expected to attract more and more fans. And as I said, over the last few years, but especially in the last couple months, we've seen these terms like quiet luxury and stealth wealth and old money get tossed around. These are all supposed designations for how rich people dress. Um, Quiet luxury and stealth wealth especially get kind of used interchangeably. Though Laura Jackson and Joy Montgomery define quiet luxury as more of an aesthetic category. They write for Vogue, quiet luxury is a low-key approach to luxury. It's less austere than minimalism, but more polished than normcore. It's Sienna Miller in Anatomy of a Scandal meets off-duty Olsen twins. It's a battered Hermes Kelly bag or a Max Mara investment coat thrown over an ancient pair of vintage jeans. 
Ava Wiseman defined stealth wealth for The Guardian by focusing on specific materials and small details on clothes. She writes, Stealth wealth is the name given to the clothes worn by the extremely rich. Very fine wools in navy or gray, oversized coats, tiny handbags, whites so bright they're almost blue, a thousand shades of camel, a whole caravan of them, a palette that whispers taste with a little lisp. Logos are replaced with secret codes, a clever little stitch at the hem or a hoodie made of cashmere. So it seems like quiet luxury is a casual, effortless style that's expensive. It is more like an aesthetic category. While stealth wealth is a more purposeful initiative to portray wealth through like secret clothing codes. Again, I don't wanna get too caught up in those definitions because um, they're pretty much used interchangeably again and there is a lot of overlap between the two. Old money, on the other hand, which I've done a whole video on, is a distilled version of preppy fashion. It's a Pinterest aesthetic that takes influence from country club outfits, Riviera vacation wardrobes, and Upper East Side private school uniforms. The talented Mr. Ripley, vintage Ralph Lauren ads, and old Hollywood icons like Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn seem ever-present on the mood boards. Old money as an aesthetic rarely applies to like the actual old money establishment. It's a romanticized idea of how they dress, heavily leaning on vintage style, including elements of old school tennis outfits, chic headscarves, and white suits. I feel like the old money aesthetic peaked on social media around 2021 to 2022. And actually since 2021, I would argue that there's been less attention paid towards aesthetics in general, but that's like another video. Quiet luxury and stealth wealth, on the other hand, supposedly represent the tastes of the current actual rich and have grown in popularity as phenomena, mostly due to Gwyneth Paltrow's court core style and the TV show Succession. I've made a whole video on Gwyneth Paltrow already, so let's just talk about Succession. Succession brought the concept of stealth wealth into the public discourse through its costume design. Every character is meticulously dressed to reveal their economic status. For instance, the image and power-obsessed Roy family wear the most offensively expensive and offensively boring clothing you can imagine. The heir to the family empire, Kendall Roy, famously wears a baseball cap. The cap is plain black, made of a cashmere blend material, and produced by the Italian knitwear brand Loro Piana. It also sells for the low cost of $625. Despite the price tag, there's nothing that really sets this hat apart, um, at least aesthetically, and it's a little boring, I'm not gonna lie. The character Bridget is ridiculed by the character Tom Wamsgen, who married into the Roy family for carrying a ludicrously capacious bag. Because she's brought a ludicrously capacious bag. What? What's even in there, huh? Flat shoes for the subway, her lunch pail. I mean, Greg, it's monstrous, it's gargantuan. You could take it camping. You could slide it across the floor after a bank job. Through this fashion faux pas, Bridget immediately marked herself as an interloper in this exclusive world. Also, I have no idea if I pronounced that character's name right because I actually haven't watched Succession. I'm just like keeping up to date with all the this, uh, cultural discourse about it because you know I like to keep tabs on those types of things, but yeah. I haven't watched it. I'm planning to at some point. Just probably not before the series ends. <laughs> the ultra-rich, of course, rarely need to carry anything, hence uh, the dig at the size of this bag. However, that's not the only issue. The bag is covered in a distinctive print that obviously signals Burberry. Even without an actual logo, it falls under Logomania. Despite the fact that this bag is actually very expensive, like it retails online for over 2,500 pounds, it reads cheap to the Roy family because it's flashy and attention-grabbing. 
this is just the most viral example of the show's costuming, but actually, like, the entire show has been receiving high praise, especially this final season. In an interview with Refinery29, the costume designer Michelle Matland explained her process. In early stages, a lot of time was spent researching, not just in magazines and online, but physically visiting restaurants, corporate offices, and the like. We spent months finding out who these people are so that we could be as authentic and real as possible and tell the story we were trying to tell. So you know what's funny? For most of history, the general consensus was that the ultra-wealthy were obsessed with wearing their status loudly and proudly. But then everything changed when the Industrial Revolution allowed a rising bourgeoisie class to make even more exorbitant amounts of money than the old nobility. Enter economist Thorsten Veblen, who coined the term conspicuous consumption, to illustrate what was happening in 1899. Veblen believed that the nouveau riche displayed extravagant spending to raise themselves to the same status as the old moneyed establishment, a process defined as pecuniary emulation. Therefore, the only way that these established old money families could uh, differentiate themselves from these newcomers was by showing better taste in the types of things that they would consume. So rather than buying anything and everything, they had to cultivate greater levels of cultural and intellectual capital. Also worth noting, logomania and ostentatious dressing have been hallmarks of like black urban street culture for a very long time. Even during the antebellum period in the South, there are traveler accounts that note how uh, black Americans living there were dressed way more colorfully and way more flamboyantly than white Americans living there. And of course, Dapper Dan, the father of Logomania, introduced heavily monogrammed designs in the 1980s, which became a mainstay of luxury streetwear. So given that, there are definitely racist implications on why uh, bold dressing and maximalism is coded as being in poor taste. The irony behind quiet luxury, though, is that, like, the rich people who engage in it apparently do so because they feel confident enough in their own wealth. They don't feel like they have to uh, prove anything to anyone. But the people who are on TikTok actively trying to look for tips on how to um, emulate the quiet luxury style are doing so because they want to impress people. On TikTok, you can find hundreds of videos on explainers of why the 1% dress a certain way and styling tutorials to bag a husband above your station or to manifest a more moneyed lifestyle. So hypergamy is defined as marrying above your station, as I've said earlier, and I want to talk a little bit about it. So just some definitions. Hypergamy emerged as an anthropological term in reference to marriage across social caste in India, but the concept applies globally, has been a thing in almost every culture since like the beginning of time. And just like as a clear example of hypergamy, if you watch any Jane Austen movies or if you read any Jane Austen books, uh, the whole concept of marrying your daughter off to someone who has a lot of wealth is a prevalent trope. Mostly because for a lot of cultures throughout history, women have not been able to seek upward mobility, financial mobility in any other way. So marriage is kind of like the only choice if you want to have a good life. <laughs> when it comes to the term gold digger, that term entered the American psyche amidst the cultural upheaval of the interwar period. So a gold digger, by definition, describes a woman seducing a man for his money, whether that be for as long as they both shall live through marriage or 
just an evening out on the town. The term was quickly popularized by a 1919 smash hit Broadway comedy, The Gold Diggers, which was written by Avery Hopwood and starred Ina Clare. Following its success, a slew of gold digging themed plays, musicals, and films featuring glitzy glamour girls ensued. Claire herself played another gold digger in the 1932 pre-code film, The Greeks Had a Word for Them, which was costumed by none other than Coco Chanel. Also, I highly recommend watching The Gold Diggers of 1933. That's another um, gold digger related pre-code Hollywood movie. And it has Ginger Rogers in it and um, some other people that are less popular now. But it is like a really fun watch. And I believe it's on Max and Amazon Prime. So if you have those two services, have at it. It's a fun time. Anyways... What's interesting about a lot of the gold digging cinema is that um, usually the gold diggers, quote unquote gold diggers that were depicted in these movies ended up with happy endings. They either ended up marrying someone who was rich or, you know, something positive happened. They never like met their ends in a way that like villains do. They were commonly depicted as pretty empathetic. Despite this, mostly positive portrayal in film and theater, newspaper comic strips and advice columnists documented negative opinions of so-called gold digging women that actually fall in line with a lot of modern attitudes towards gold digging. For example, there was even an organization like the Alimony Payers Protective Organization and the Alimony Reform League, which were created to combat this perceived problem of gold digging ex-wives. So that's just some of the history, but in recent times maybe in response to stagnating wages and rolling waves of layoffs and this whole like decade-long lean-in girl boss she-o narrative that's become super tired. Some women have become disillusioned with this whole idea of being a she-o and have instead returned to this idea of finding their fortune through marriage. And on TikTok, you can find so many videos of these so-called dating coaches who give advice on how to marry up in your station, how to secure a wealthy finance bro husband so that you never have to work again. And the problem, though, in this generation is that, uh, I mean, similar to before, gold digging is something that's looked down upon. And so a lot of the advice that's given to women who are aspiring to um, marry up is that they can't pose themselves as gold diggers. They have to blend in. And a lot of that has to go with style codes. So a lot of the advice um, tells women that they have to engage in these kind of like stealth wealth, quiet luxury practices of dressing so that they can trick these wealthy men into thinking that they are also of the same breeding. (laughs) And that's how they can foster this relationship together. And obviously, there's all these like misogynistic, patriarchal undertones, right? So, um, so much of the advice is like, you can't show too much skin because showing too much skin makes you look like a whore and you'll never be wife material if you're a whore. <laughs> so also like, I wanted to pull this example from Succession because I feel like it relates in how we perceive gold digging women, right? So... There's this one character on Succession 
and her name is Willa Ferreira. She's introduced in the first season as a high-end escort turned girlfriend of Connor Roy, who is the eldest and most clueless Roy sibling. Willa wears a lot of bohemian floral dresses. Uh, her outfits are usually a little too casual or too skimpy for the events that she's going to. For example, she wears a miniskirt set and a black choker necklace to her father-in-law's wake. Obviously, like her costume design is purposeful to kind of bring attention to the fact that she is this gold digger, essentially. Someone who does not fit in with the rest of the moneyed class who usually just lean on business attire. And so for a lot of the hypergamous community on TikTok, this is like a what not to do, a what not to wear. Um, and I do want to say that there are some people who do kind of embrace this like escort aesthetic, but uh, for the particular community I'm talking about on TikTok, they are very like, you need to dress conservative. You need to blend in with the rich. And I think it's like really funny because Sophia Ritchie has also become like the poster girl of the fashion movement for these people. And I think it's funny because Sophia Ritchie has always been wealthy. Like she's Lionel Ritchie's daughter. She was born wealthy. It doesn't really matter what she wears. And since she's gotten married to Elliot Grain, she was the CEO of Universal Music Group's son her outfits have gotten a lot of buzz because her wedding was super high profile and then people have paid more attention to her in general and have noticed that her style has heavily evolved from a couple years ago to now. Before she used to wear a lot of like flashier clothing, a lot of glitter, a lot of like Kylie Jenner adjacent types of clothes and now she wears a lot of like old money conservative types of clothing and because of that there were all these videos that were coming out where they were like, oh, you need to be like Sophia Richie, like dress like Sophia Richie. This is the Sophia Richie effect. And yeah, sure. I mean, I think Sophia Richie is or can be a style icon for hypergamy TikTok. But I also just think it's ironic because she's always been wealthy and it doesn't really matter what she wears because her life will not have been different if she continued wearing whatever she was wearing like five years ago. So overall, I just thought this was like a niche worth mentioning because I think that while hypergamy narratives have been around for centuries, the popularity of these how-to guides on TikTok is very tied in with the appeal of stealth wealth. In a way, stealth wealth has morphed into becoming a trend in and of itself. As Amanda Mull reports for The Atlantic, all of a sudden, more accessible stores such as H&M and Zara are selling nondescript, generously cut trousers and oversized button-downs and double-breasted blazers and grandpa loafers. The fashion website Hypebeast cites, by its count, 1.4 billion views for stealth wealth meeting on TikTok as evidence that the kids really are dying to save up and swat themselves in cashmere, or more likely to buy budget-friendly knit blends. A lot of people who are pulled to this style um, like to defend it in any way that they can to justify why they want to dress this way. They'll say that quiet luxury is more practical for everyday wear, it's more comfortable because the fabrics are nicer, um, you're investing in staple pieces and therefore you're being more eco-conscious, and you're not trifling with petty social signals like logos. But none of those things are necessarily true. <laughs> Many rich people, even like the old moneyed rich people, dress horribly. They have truly awful style. Okay, not everyone is Gwyneth Paltrow. 
they also don't exist as a monolith, right? Like some of them actually do wear a lot of logos and many of them do wear impractical and wasteful things. You know, I was, when I was doing my interview with Ryan and we were talking about the whole quiet luxury, I asked her what she thought was actually quiet luxury. And what we've kind of realized in that episode is that it's more of a sensibility than like the presentation. I feel like there's certain like, social codes that a lot of old money people participate in like the way that they talk and certain behaviors that extend way beyond dress and it's all like a reflection of you know going to these specific private schools preparatory schools and um growing up in these kind of communities those are things that cannot be replicated by a bruno cuccinelli sweater Ultimately, like the idea of a rich person uniform is a mythology that was created by people who are aspiring to be rich. And I can understand why people do this. It makes the rich seem more easy to crack. It makes people who want to be a part of this uh, group and this lifestyle feel that if they just crack the secret code, if they can just buy one beautifully knit cashmere sweater then maybe they can sneak into the upper echelons of society and maybe just maybe they can elevate themselves and belong it all goes back to the american dream baby like the american dream is the reason for all this kind of dysfunction (laughs) like if you're not american the american dream is this like idea that's been transmitted into our brains since we were babies that america is a meritocracy and if you just work hard if you just you know what what is that phrase like raise your bootstraps hike your bootstrap something with your bootstraps if you just grab them (laughs) and you just put your all into your work you could be the next jeff bezos it has nothing to do with generational wealth and it has nothing to do with the fact that a lot of these rich people have connections that get them to where they are. As Jake Silbert writes for Heist Nabiety, these profoundly wealthy people are lionized as gods in popular culture. Elon Musk's unfunny memes are worshipped by his cultish fans, and Steve Jobs' normcore uniform is perpetually imitated by wannabe geniuses seeking to become the next tech auteur. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves, we need to really sit there and ask ourselves, do we want to aspire to be these people? Do we want to belong with the people who are doing the most when it comes to environmental destruction? Do we want to be in the group of people who are jet-setting to private islands, whereas the rest of us stayed masked in quarantine? The people who hoard their money instead of using it to uh, better society in any kind of measurable way. Wiseman critiques, buying into stealth wealth feels like buying a band t-shirt, except the band are the worst people in the world, and the t-shirt costs the same as a month's rent, and the music is them laughing as they shout each shit from a car. With the greatest respect, no thank you. I think I'm less influenced by wealthy people dressing more so than like how they look and what they dress. You know, especially with social media being so fabricated and filtered and it's less about what they're wearing and how they're pulling it off. And, you know, those trends that they wear get filtered down to fast fashion and, you know, us normal people try it out and it doesn't look as good on us. And it's less about the quality of the clothes, but more so that it just doesn't fit us the way that we want it to or the way that we see celebrities have it fit them. And, you know, they do get a lot of plastic surgery and they do have you know, the ability to 
make their body look the way they want. And I think it's disheartening that, you know, especially teenage girls like I am, we know that we'll never be able to achieve what they look like, you know, what the rich people look like and achieve what they're wearing. Okay, yeah. So there was actually a comment thread on my video about this and someone had said, I feel like the wear your wealth aesthetic is less about clothes now and more about surgeries, lip fillers, BBLs, veneers, etc. And I think there's definitely a lot of truth to that. I think rich people, even if they don't particularly believe in any kind of like flashy cosmetic procedures, it's these subtle things that lead to an overall quote-unquote better appearance. It's like they can afford a nutritionist. They can afford to fucking sleep. Like they have nannies and helpers doing chores. They can exercise when they want, whenever they want, joining all these like luxe gyms, going to spas. So I feel even though like new money is more associated with plastic surgery and lip fillers and all that kind of shaping, if you have money, you're just able to focus more on your appearance and your presentation because you have the time. I think that really is what it is. Like when you have money, you have time. But also in your response, you're talking about the way that clothes fit. And my life hack is that buy like thrifted blazers, thrifted suits, thrifted pants, like buy them for the cheap, $5, $10, whatever, and then take them to a tailor or if you know how to sew, alter it yourself. That's always a good skill. Like I do have a tailor who I work with. She's the best. Her name is Janet when I have um, really like difficult fixes. But for any kind of small alterations like taking up a hem or sewing on new buttons or patches or just fixing up little rips, I can do that. And it definitely makes such a difference because like you said, a lot of wealthy people just look really good in clothes. And especially for suits, it's because they get them custom tailored, custom designed for them. But if you just take a little janky suit and just fix it up and make it so it really fits you, it will look really good. And you'll look more expensive if you care about that. But mostly I think having well-fitted clothes does so much for your confidence. So we've talked about 2008 and we've talked about the impending recession and I feel like if we look at both of these moments in a vacuum, it's easy to come to the conclusion that recessions lead to minimalism, but that's not always the case. For instance, when we had a baby recession during quarantine, people were all about DIY maximalism in 2020 as a form of escapism and as crafting grew in popularity. Also, during the Great Depression, middle and lower class women also engaged in craftiness as exemplified by feed sack dresses. If you don't know what a feed sack dress is, these are dresses that are literally made of the fabric sacks that were used to package shipped commodities like flour and animal feed. Rural women started making garments out of the leftover sack to be thrifty throughout the early 20th century. But by the Depression, the practice had spread throughout the rest of the nation because buying bolts of fabric was so expensive in comparison. So, as it became more popular to sew dresses out of fabric sacks, businesses realized the way their sacks looked could be a huge selling point for their goods. Companies like Gingham Girl Flower packaged their goods in dress quality fabric and used its sacks as a selling point. Trade organizations also sponsored feed sack shows, and manufacturers even went so far as to hire designers to make sure that the prints and patterns on these feed sacks were fashionable and um, desirable to modern day women. 
So if you look at some photos of feed sack dresses, some of them are actually quite maximal with stylish prints. And when it came to rich people, we have to understand that movies were a huge industry in the 1930s and a lot of people went to the movies as a form of escapism from, you know, the dire economic times. And so a lot of these movies at the time had to do with like rags to riches or, you know, um, they were just like pure fun and escapism like uh, Ginger Roger and Fred Astaire's collaborations. And of course, the dresses that were featured in these films tended to be very elaborate, very lavish, um, feeding into the romanticized fantasy that a lot of um, working class women had. And because fashion trends have always had this kind of close relationship with movies, um, but especially in the early 20th century, some of the fashion trends of the 1930s were pretty maximalist. However, I have to add that in real life, the rich were still throwing lavish parties and balls as a way to lighten the mood, rocking expensive fur coats and whatnot. And working class people were stunned to see these real life maximalist displays of wealth, um, which led to a lot of class conflict, especially in the form of violent worker strikes and a push for unionization. But anyways, the point is an economic recession does not necessarily mean that people will pare down their wardrobes. One thing that is consistent though, is that rich people will always dress in a way that is coded as rich, even if we can't necessarily tell immediately from the onset. So for example, um, while we like to think that rich people throughout history have always dressed in a garish way with long colorful velvet robes and flashy jewels, this wasn't consistently the case. During the Dutch golden age in the 17th century, a period of economic prosperity in the Netherlands, hence the, the term golden age, the new wealthy merchant class followed a Protestant sensibility for wearing simple muted colors, but in actuality their clothes were still very expensive. We can take a look at Nicholas May's portrait of Cornelius Munter in 1679. Charlotte Higgins wrote for The Guardian that despite its simplistic cut, the jacket Cornelius is wearing is actually very luxurious. She writes, It is a marvelous garment, a real fashion statement, a Japanese padded jacket in, according to curator Betsy Weissman, a shantung silk. These jackets were incredibly hard to get hold of. In fact, you could only acquire one if you had connections with the powerful Dutch East India Company. It was the It Jacket. And getting one is not just about being rich, it is also about cozying up to the right people. Weissman also points out that it was a deeply utilitarian item, all that snug padding being just the thing for frosty Dutch mornings. So, you know, um, very comfortable, like a lot of like these high-end cashmere knits of today, very modest in the way that it's not a flashy item, but still very expensive to those in the know. So as I said, the reason why these like Dutch merchants were um, dressed more simply compared to like, let's say their French counterparts is because of their Protestant beliefs. Um, and even though now I would argue that a lot of wealthy people are not necessarily outwardly religious in that way, the way that they dress um, still reflects the kind of values that they have. So we can look at tech bros actually. And I know that tech bros are more so like a new moneyed class. There are definitely some tech bros that come from wealth, but like the industry as a whole is related to like new money. They are still rich people and still the way that they dress conveys like their beliefs. The tech bro uniform is usually a type of like commoner outfit of jeans and hoodies, but with subtle nods to their wealth with expensive watches and company insignias on their t-shirts. 
This newly moneyed class is strategically displaying their mounting riches while still making sure to project the values they wish to be associated with. Nerdy intelligence, privilege to not care about fashion, and all-consuming hard work. I mean, Steve Jobs allegedly wore a black turtleneck every day to reduce decision fatigue. And decision fatigue is the paralysis you experience when you're inundated with too many choices. So, aka me, whenever I see a menu that's more than two pages long. <laughs> so quiet luxury, even though it has this reputation for not flexing your wealth, it actually is flexing your wealth. It's just doing it in a different way. It's doing it through codes and meanings, but it's still doing it. And I think the reason it's popular now is for a number of reasons, not just because of the economic recession, but also because, um, you know, the pendulum always likes to swing back and forth between maximalism and minimalism. And we did just have this period of maximalism. So people are getting tired of it and now they're skewing towards minimalism. But nothing's really changed, you know? Like back in the 2010s, people were still trying to emulate the rich. They were trying to emulate the Kardashians with the logomania and ostentatious flexing of wealth. It wasn't seen as gaudy at the time because the whole like idea of like influencing and that entire industry was new. But I think generally whenever something has been in the mainstream for too long, people get tired of it and they want something different. This is a written response I received. Hi, Mina. I love your videos and podcasts. I find this topic fascinating. My old boss was a millionaire and would wear clothes from brands like Zara or H&M in the office. But my colleagues and I were convinced that she wore normal people clothes to seem more approachable and down-to-earth when in work. I'm certain that when she is at home or socializing with her rich friends, she wears designer pieces. The epitome of wealth is buying cheap clothes to seem normal, while the rest of us are seemingly doing the exact opposite. Love you, Maria. Okay, so I actually have a lot of thoughts on this, and I even wrote out, <laughs> like an entire response because I feel like this is such a common thing that I noticed, especially um, being in my early 20s in New York City. And there's so many people here who grew up wealthy and who pretend that they're not, especially when I was living in Bushwick. Honestly, there were so many people who fit this criteria where they just, um, you know, they would go like dumpster diving. They would only shop at thrift stores, but then their families were actually very wealthy. So I think this is just a really good, oh, this is just like a, such a good addition to this podcast episode because for most of this episode, we've discussed at length the ways that rich people dress and primarily how they like to show off their wealth through their clothing codes. But you know, what about rich people who cosplay as working or middle-class people? I want to talk about workwear for a second also because as I was thinking about Maria's response, Maria's email, I was also thinking about how workwear silhouettes and garments like overalls, chore coats, and boiler suits always pop up now and then on fashion runways. But as in the name, these garments are still mainstays for a lot of working class people's uniforms. So definitionally in the fashion industry, workwear typically describes menswear that adheres to the aesthetic of men's garments originating for use in American Fordist era manual labor professions. So such garments are usually made from heavy denim, canvas, or wool, and they were initially designed and manufactured for the comfort and safety of people working in industries like mining, production, railways, farming, mechanics, etc. 
Workwear for fashion over function primarily developed on the street scene, but since around the 90s, it's moved to the runway through innovations by Jenny Watanabe, Helmut Lang, and the high fashion legacy has continued with uh, designers like Heron Preston and Kiko Kostadinov. Though heritage workwear brands like Carhartt and Dickies have also dived into the fashion sphere, Dickies has done higher-end collaborations with Opening Ceremony and Stussy, and Carhartt has had their work-in-progress fashion line since 1994 that's been embraced by celebrities like Rihanna and Bella Hadid. There was a feature in Input Magazine years ago where the writer interviewed actual blue-collar workers about their workwear, and this one couple that was interviewed, the Courtmans, talked about their relationship to their uniforms, and I thought that was really cool. Mona Cortman told the magazine that when you're actually wearing workwear to work, the clothes get really damaged. And so it wouldn't make sense to spend hundreds of dollars on premium work clothes from Carhartt's WIP line if they have to be replaced every six months, which is about how long their pieces usually last. Phil Cortman <laughs> added like, we're the real work in progress. So it's just so interesting how even the distressing of clothing that is associated with overwork has become fashionable at different times too. For example, ripped jeans, and then there were those like pre-scuffed golden goose sneakers that were really popular. These are all supposed to create the illusion of effortlessness and casualness, despite the high prices that you actually have to pay to get clothes pre-distressed. It was also interesting how these clothing codes collided during the Trump years. I remember Kendall Jenner was pictured wearing camouflage Crocs, and there were articles about how it was distasteful because camouflage and by extension other workwear codes are so heavily tied in with the aesthetics of right-wing Trumpers. However, I do feel that since Trump has left office, people don't feel as bad about wearing workwear and American flag motifs anymore, even though, you know, state of the country has still much to be improved upon. But are there still implications for the rich adopting blue-collar dress coats? I read this Racked article from 2017, and there's this one quote that really stuck out to me. The workwear trend is just one example of how Americans are responding to their deep-seated need to be productive members of society. And so yeah, it just goes back to this idea that some wealthy people like to promote the illusion of hard work as to get sympathy from other people, to be more well-liked, to prove that they deserve the wealth that they have, which when it comes to clothes, I think it operates on a more subconscious level for uh, norm core and work wear because these elements have also been co-opted on the runway and so you know, you could actually be buying something very expensive and it could be very avant-garde but still be inspired by the working class uniform. And that might not immediately connect when you're buying Heron Preston, for instance. But I think for cosplaying as a middle class or working class person by buying Zara and only wearing it around your employees, like in this earlier message, that is more of a conscious choice to downplay the fact that you have a lot of money because it makes you uncomfortable that you do. And it's just this interesting thing, and I was talking about this with Avery, about how people in America don't like to admit that money is a major thing, that class is a major thing, that we have that in this country because it feels so antiquated and old and European but we do have class systems and people are obsessed with trying to figure out who makes what money and like who comes from wealth. But we don't have any etiquette codes that allow for you to ask those things in public. So people just like have to play this game of like 
trying to put together the clues. And so I think that's why that there are these rich people who try to adopt the codes that exist for like middle class and working class people as to feign ignorance of the class system or at least pretend that they are not part of it in any bad way. (laughs) Okay, and now I would like to introduce Amanda Mull, who, as I said earlier, is a writer for The Atlantic and... I just thought she would have some amazing takes on quiet luxury and stealth wealth, having written an article about it for The Atlantic. (laughs) So let's bring her on. Okay, so earlier this year, there were a lot of news outlets that were covering the idea of recession core. And a lot of it had to do with these minimalist fashion trends that were coming out, like the no statement necklaces on the red carpet, um, and just like a general direction towards 90s minimalism. But do you think recession core is actually real? <laughs> I don't think so, honestly. Um, I think, you know, I, I think that the sort of uh, predilection on TikTok, especially, but also on Instagram, across the internet, of sort of trying to categorize these sort of niche trends or these micro trends or the, you know, undulation of the style universe is really, really fascinating. But I think that uh, the act of categorization, the more you do it, the more likely you are to be wrong about something occasionally. And I think that, I think recession core is not a real thing. (laughs) Well, going off on TikTok, because in your article, you talked a lot about this feedback loop of TikTokers making content, traditional media making articles about these TikTokers and then more TikTokers kind of jumping in um, and blowing it up to be more of a phenomenon. So I was wondering, because a lot of the advice content that I found on TikTok that relates to quiet luxury, they're given by people who are not actually in old moneyed established circles. And do you find that the tips in these videos are actually accurate in any way? Or is it like misleading information that gets circulated? I think some of it like gets it something real. And then some of it is like a feedback loop of like TikTok just talking to itself about things uh, in like a bit of a bubble. Um, I think the larger sort of interaction between like traditional media and social media and TikTok in particular right now is interesting because on TikTok, you have a group of people that is like overwhelmingly like teens, early 20s. Like this is a very specific demographic that disproportionately populates TikTok. And then you have people in media who are writing about this stuff. And a lot of them are, you know, especially in traditional media or larger media outlets are in their 30s. <laughs> so you you get uh, one group of people sort of having a conversation amongst themselves about something and trying to work something out that they've like noticed or they're trying to understand. And then you get an entirely different group of people that I think is sometimes like misperceiving that conversation and what it means um, just because they're sort of like an out group. That is that sometimes forgets they're an out group, I think. So I think what you have on TikTok is um, is a lot of very young people, often people in, like I said, teens, early 20s, who are doing what everybody does at this stage of life, which is like sort of trying to work out what different appearances and different ways of dressing and different ways of representing yourself in public mean and like which one they might want to adopt for themselves. This is something that people in that age range have done um, forever since we've had a society and especially since we've had a consumer society um, because the types of things you purchase and adorn yourself with are like especially meaningful in that context. So you have people in their 20s who are 
I think latching on to something real, um, the the idea that, you know, there's a certain type of rich person that uh, that tends to wear neutrals, that tends to wear things that are made out of really fine fabrics, that tends to not be drawn to as many logoed things um, as some other people. I think that's a real phenomenon. Um, I don't think it's a universal one of like generational wealth, like it's been made out to be, but that's where you sort of like lose the context in some of these like in-group conversations. And especially among like really young people who are trying to understand this type of like larger social phenomenon. Um, I think they get some of it right, but I think that what they're talking about is sort of a niche phenomenon that tends to get like universalized. Um, so they're not like entirely wrong, but they're just, um, um, overgeneralizing, I think. Why do you think like this particular niche of how rich people dress has become popular as of late? Like the focus on neutrals and more minimalistic cuts versus like logo mania, which is what we had in the early 2000s. And then even, you know, you could go back into be even more maximalist with all like the historical types of like opulent dressing that was inspired of rich people of that time period. But why do you think it's like this conservative dress that some rich people do that's taken off? Well, I think that the best way to understand why any trend is, trend is happening is to look at what was happening like 10 years prior to it. Um, because the trend pendulum tends to swing. Um, you get to one extreme of something, and as soon as something is as cool as it possibly can be, or as um, widely beloved as it possibly can be, it has already started to become less cool. And that is just the cycle of uh, how these things go. Because once something has become like incredibly, incredibly broad and widely adopted, um, people start to get a little sick of it. They get people get bored. You know, people want to try something else they you know people like novelty so what we've seen in the past like 10 or 15 years in apparel in general both in like high fashion and in sort of generalized clothing is that we have a lot of logos we have a lot of streetwear supreme uh and all the brands that want to be supreme <laughs> and um you know heavily logoed um accessories from louis vuitton and balenciaga and places like that and then like also athleisure um wearing stuff that would have traditionally been being considered gym clothes leggings hoodies t-shirts sneakers stuff like that and like all that stuff is fun i really enjoyed that era of fashion it was sort of like took itself a little less seriously than previous eras of fashion that i've participated in but then you know it got to the point where people i think started to get a little bit tired of it like the impossibility of buying a pair of cool sneakers got a little old you know the sort of hype drops cycle got a little bit old people get sick of like competing to buy things and then people get sick of i think sort of wearing the same clothes everywhere they go which is like what athleisure sort of does which is make you know work clothes and party clothes a little bit more like errand clothes and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's um, more comfortable and people you know first and foremost it's hard to sell a trend that's not comfortable but people just get sick of doing that after a while so you've had like a solid 15 years of that and i think people just wanted to do something different and what's more different than you know supreme drops and um nikes than you know buying a nice sweater and a generously cut pair of slacks and like a beautiful pair of loafers like i i think that and especially because the hype cycle was such a part of the past 10 years of fashion, not only the idea that you can buy these sort of more classic, more structured, more real clothes, quote unquote, like pieces, that was a big thing. And then also the idea that you can just like keep them for a while and maybe like be a little less hype, <laughs> um, yeah. I think is uh, is interesting to people. So you got that combination. Um, and I think that that is really like the biggest driver of this. 
I have also like been thinking about it a lot and I feel like the stereotype right is that people who are in old money circles they dress down like they're less flashy than like new moneyed circles but then when I was thinking about these like billionaire Silicon Valley type of people like tech bros like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg even though I wouldn't consider him a fashion icon you know like they <laughs> they dress kind of down and they also wear or you know Steve Jobs is dead now but Mark Zuckerberg I think he wears like Laura Piana which is like this old money brand um so why is it that this particular style it's so associated with like Sophia Richie and all these heiresses and not with tech bros and the new like rising billionaire class well, I think part of it is because these brands really want to be associated with old money. Um, the easiest way to sell a fashion brand, if you're skilled at it at all, is to build on its quote unquote heritage. Um, heritage is a huge selling point in fashion marketing. Um, and in particular, the biggest luxury conglomerate in the world is LVMH. They have selling uh, heritage and legacy down to a science. They are very, very good at it because they own so many different brands and because they are so big, they can level set sort of how we talk about fashion in the West in particular, but really all over the world. One of the things they've done in the past couple of decades is really expand their influence worldwide. So you get a fashion conglomerate that gets to dictate to a certain extent how people think about especially high fashion brands. And they are really, really good at selling legacy. They're good at selling history. And that means that they don't want their products to be associated with like a, a brand new crop of people, a brand new generation. They want it primarily to be something that signifies this like older, more traditional, more sophisticated idea of wealth. And they own Laura Piana. They own a lot of brands or they're invested in also some other brands that are related to this um, phenomenon. So they want to sell things to, you know, brand new tech millionaires. They want to sell things to crypto guys. They want to sell things to um, people who are getting rich right now, but they want to sell things to those people under the pretenses of allowing them access to the sort of old secrets of luxury. So it is very much in the best interest of these brands to maintain their, uh, their links to older ideas of luxury and wealth and older ideas of elite status. And I think that they're very effective at doing that, which is why um, these brands in particular get sort of assigned to a uh, more traditional idea of wealth. So in a way, like these brands are selling like a lifestyle, right? Like an aspirational lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, because there's like this idea that with old money, and the idea of like quiet luxury, it's because you don't need to prove anything because you're so secure in your own wealth. And I was wondering if that's like actually true with a lot of these rich, old rich people, because, you know, looking at succession, it's actually kind of ironic because the family that is supposed to represent this old money family is very concerned about maintaining their status. So is that the idea that rich people are just secure in their money? Is that like a, a pipe dream that aspiring people have come up with or is there truth in that i think it's sort of a pipe dream of course there are going to be like on the individual level though there will be some people who are just secure and uh stable and unbothered by sort of the the everyday sort of undulations of emotional life but i think largely what we see with as people gain wealth is that you know you sort of end up on the hedonic treadmill you end up 
sort of increasingly unsatisfied as you go um, because aspiration is the thing that you've been programmed to do. And if all you ever do is aspire, then there's no like inherent satisfaction in any of it. I think that with rich people, the idea that that there's a certain amount of money, a certain amount of wealth you can cum- accumulate that will make you feel um, secure and safe and like totally fine with the world and with your life and with yourself is uh, the lie is given to that again and again and again. Um, you can see how rich people act sort of in public life and try to, you know, uh, continue to shape the world to their whims and to their preferences and shape society that way, which suggests to me, you know, a a sort of insecurity in their, um, in their status uh, in some ways. And then you can see there's, and there's been tons of literature about this and tons of, I think also psychological study on this, that the scions of wealth, the heirs often feel like inadequate and uh, both entitled and incapable of doing what their forebears did that made all the money in the first place. And I think you see that in succession. You see people who are not, you know, incredibly happy with themselves and incredibly happy with what they have accomplished. You see the Logan character who um, is constantly trying to futz with how society is is moving and how things are going. And he is, you know, till his dying day is not satisfied. And then you see his dissatisfaction with his children and, and how much his children understand that they are sort of pretenders to the throne. And I think that dynamic within wealthy families, even ones that are more functional than the Roy family is like not uncommon. Um, you see a lot of people who were born rich that end up um, struggling with addiction and mental health and things like that. And I think it's this sort of like inherent sense of inadequacy that a lot of rich people feel. Um, and especially a lot of people who have inherited money feel um, because at the same time, there's they, they've never had uh, real consequences for anything. There's always been a huge safety net for them, but they also uh, there's the sort of inherent sense that um, nothing they have is stuff they have because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that tends to like, run a little ragged in people's psychology so yeah the the idea that these are the clothes of a really content happy stable people is i think mostly false yeah it kind of reminds me of the whole nepo baby discourse and like how people get so upset that these like kids of actors or of artists like try to get into the industry but i think that also is kind of representative of the pressure to like make something of your life and to have something of your own and not yes. just have it like be given to you from your parents, even though <laughs> they obviously give you like a gigantic boost. Yes. I think that a lot of um, people from wealth go into those industries first because it it's easier to break into them when, um, when you have a financial safety net, but also because it is like those are industries in which you sort of become publicly your own identity to people and people get acquainted with you through your name instead of your parents' name. Um, so it, it really doesn't surprise me that all, at all that people with who might have like a sense that they need to prove to themselves and to the world that they actually are special mm-hmm. go into these, these incredibly um, public talent-based theoretically industries. Yeah, no, that's so true. Okay. And then also just like related to that because something that I haven't been able to really figure out is why young people and especially in this like socio-political climate who um rag on like nepo babies and who love like tv shows that make fun of the rich like why they still find it aspirational to mirror the way that these people supposedly dress I think that there's a lot of different phenomena at play there I think that part of it is that everybody sort of 
hates themselves for aspiring on some level, you know, that we all, well, not, not necessarily all of us, but a lot of us know that like money won't make you happy. It will make life easier in certain ways, but like it won't solve every problem you have. You're still yourself, no matter how much money you have. Um, and that is a downside for some people in their conception of how, how happy wealth will make them. And I think that there's, you know, a sense that that wealth is distributed unfairly, which I think is absolutely correct, and a sense of resentment against the wealthy because of it, which I think, you know, is justified. But then you have to sort of deal with the idea that, like, even though you resent these people and you think they're largely probably bad people, um, that you still, on some level, wish you could be them. And, like, uh, that's a difficult bit of paradoxical psychology i think and um and there is this sort of sense that these types of shows this media about the sort of bumbling wealthy or the uh inadequate wealthy sort of gives us an opportunity to sort of like juggle those contradictions in our own minds and our own sense of aspiration because you can watch something like succession and like lust after the clothing and the the beautiful furniture and the the fun parties and the destinations and the houses and and still go okay i want those things but i'm a better person than these people so maybe if i got them <laughs> that that would be that would be okay because i deserve them more than the roy siblings and probably any average person on the street deserves all of those things more than any of the roy siblings does but i think it gives people an opportunity to sort of reconcile some of these contradictory emotions that they feel about wealth and aspiration and to reconcile some of what their you know broader political thinking what that leads them to and and the sense of like personal yearning that they feel for some of the trappings of wealth. Um, okay, thank you so much. Like, those are all the questions that I have. I'm just like really honored to have gotten this chance to talk to you because oh, I course. followed your writing for a while actually. Um, oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I was excited to be asked. Love to talk about this topic. I worked in fashion for a long time, so I have a lot of thoughts about about rich people as a uh, as a group and about uh, how they think about clothing. Okay, thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Bye. Hey.